Welcome to the Saturday Blitz Podcast with your tailgater crew, John Mitchell and Zach Bogalki. Welcome back to the Saturday Blitz Podcast, everybody. We just wrapped up championship week in college football. Selection Sunday has passed us, and we're getting ready for the bowl season. I'm Zach Bogalki here is with you as always with John Mitchell. We've got a lot to talk about this week. In the first segment, we will be wrapping up everything on championship weekend, going into our best wins and worst losses, biggest surprises in our game balls. In the second segment, we're going to look a little bit at the final college football playoff rankings, and then offering up some of our best and worst non-New Year's Six bowl games for bowl season. In our final segment, we'll be going into our garbage as always, this time from Championship Week. Before we take a quick look at Army-Navy, offer up some food and drink options, and send you on your way. How are you doing this week, John? I'm doing well. Um, You know, great final, I guess, full weekend of college football we're going to have until bowl season starts. Still got the Army-Navy game and, you know, awards and stuff like that, so it was... It was still a really good weekend, a lot of really good matchups, and I think we got uh, I think we got the appropriate playoff. I think there's no real argument in that. So, no, definitely the top four teams definitely came through in the end, and the way championship weekend played out was really favorable for the selection committee this year for sure. They didn't have to scratch their heads too hard. But let's dive in and look a bit deeper at Championship Weekend, because even though there were 10 games, they were 10 action-packed games. What did you see as the best win of the week, John? You know, it was a bit surprising, I think, and it was almost potentially the biggest surprise of the week. Wisconsin really came out swinging in the Big Ten Championship game, um, breaking out to an early 14 to nothing lead taking a 21-7 lead into the locker room, a really impressive final drive by the Badgers there before the half where, you know, Ohio State had gathered some momentum back with Dobbins' touchdown with 42 seconds to go, and then Jonathan Taylor breaks a big run. Wisconsin gets what looked like it's a massive touchdown right before the half. And then Ohio State responded like the best team in the country, like we've seen them all year. Their defense stiffened up, didn't give up any points in the second half. And the Buckeyes, you know, rolled out a twenty-seven to nothing second half of that game to to clinch a playoff berth, probably fairly falling to number two based on LSU's resume, to be honest. But I think it's I think them and the the Tigers are pretty interchangeable. So to me, just to see that response, I think that really bodes well for Ohio State after getting, you know, actually tested in that game in the Big Ten title game. So really hats off to the Badgers. They really came ready to play. But I was impressed with, I guess, the championship resolve that I saw from the Buckeyes. Yeah, Ohio State looked impressive coming through the way they did. It was one of those games that really was a Jekyll and Hyde sort of game, tale of two halves. And Wisconsin threw their best punches, but it really was sort of a... uh, an Ollie sort of fight by the Buckeyes where they just let the Badgers punch and punch and punch and wear themselves out until Ohio State came with the knockout blow. So it was a really impressive win. And even though the Buckeyes did drop a spot, I think that they certainly, you know, earned their spot in the playoff. No doubt about that. 
For me, I thought Clemson also really earned their spot in the playoff. There was a lot of question marks about these Tigers throughout the season. And in the past month, they've really come on hot and looked just ready to defend that college football playoff. Uh, Trevor Lawrence was incredible. Near perfect 16 of 22 for 302 yards and four touchdowns. Uh, really enjoyed throwing to T. Higgins for sure. Uh, Higgins hauled in nine balls for 182 and three of those four touchdown catches. Uh, Travis Etienne looked good, 114 yards and a touchdown on the ground. And the Cavaliers gave up 619 total yards of offense. This was a game that I honestly thought was going to be much closer based on the way past ACC championships had played out, but... That Tigers defense came through, forcing a couple of interceptions by Bryce Perkins. And now the Tigers, they're tied with Alabama for the record with five consecutive college football playoff appearances. So they really came out swinging. I, in my projections at Saturday Blitz, actually thought that the committee might rate them ahead of Ohio State just for semantic purposes. Uh, eventually, the Buckeyes did end up at that number two, but. Like you said, it really didn't matter which way that went. Uh, it really comes down to uh, just who, what jersey do you get to wear on the field. Uh, so hats off to Clemson there. And honestly, I thought the most fun that the selection committee could have had would have been to put Clemson number one and make LSU and Ohio State play each other since everybody was, you know, debating which one would have to play Clemson might as well make them wait till the final to do it but they didn't listen to me we'll we'll get over it <laughs> yeah I mean I think everyone's kind of been overlooking Clemson the last really the whole season you know they, they had that near miss in September against North Carolina and since then they've kind of been an afterthought which is weird when you're talking about a team that's the defending national champions talking about a team that's won 28 straight games. You know, the Tigers have been just outright dominant over the last month and a half or so of the season. They're clicking on all cylinders at the perfect time. Trevor Lawrence shook off that sophomore slump he was having early in the season. And he looks just as deadly as he looked at the end of last year. I don't think anybody wants to play Clemson right now, but I'm just so excited to see that matchup with Ohio state in the college football playoff. That's going to be maybe the most anticipated matchup I've had of the playoff era. It's just as a neutral fan, you know, you know, Alabama not being in it sucks, but also I get to kind of sit back and watch the playoff and just enjoy it and not have to, you know, have that stress going on about my team playing. So I'm really excited about that matchup in particular. Yeah, you haven't had to do that yet as a fan, so it'll be a new experience for you. <laughs> yeah, honestly, I'm excited about it. Well, good. That's a good perspective to have on it. Switching up gears, not every not every win was great, and certainly some losses really hurt some teams. So, in terms of losses, who suffered the worst defeat on on Championship Saturday? You know, I it wasn't even one I didn't anticipate. I guess that, but just seeing Georgia just look lifeless against LSU and really not putting up much of a fight from the very opening whistle just watching LSU go into Atlanta and just dominate the Bulldogs. And, I mean, 
I think it's fair to question now how many more times this can happen to Georgia where they're just they fall flat on the big stage and the big moments before that fan base starts turning on Kirby Smart like they turned on Mark Rick. You know, the script on Rick was that he couldn't win the big one, right? He won a lot of games in Athens, but couldn't quite get over the hump. We're seeing the same thing with Kirby Smart so far. He obviously, you know, won the SEC championship and made the national title game in the in 2017, but they lost. They got back last year into the SEC title game, blew a late lead against Alabama, get back there again, and they lose again to LSU this year. And, you know, we've seen coaches get fired for for less than that. I mean, one, just a few years ago, Jim McElwain was fired midseason at Florida after leading the Gators to back-to-back SEC East titles. So we've obviously seen precedent that winning the SEC East certainly isn't the be-all, end-all um, for anything. And Georgia has aspirations to you know, win national championships. That's the type of program they think they can be. And, you know, I just expected more of a fight. I expected more from Jake Fromm in that game. He usually steps up on the big stages, and he just looked erratic like he's looked most of the season. It seems like he's regressed since his freshman season last year and then this year. Um, Obviously, part of that, like Kirby Smart talked about in the postgame, is, you know, they did lose a lot of talent at receiver, and that was the thing we talked about and a lot of people talked about in the preseason was how Georgia replaces all the talent they lost on the outside. And obviously they haven't been able to effectively do that with some of the younger guys they have. I just really, this, this isn't a world-class LSU defense, but I think this was really showed to me for Georgia that they've got to, Kirby Smart's got to come to the same realization, I think, that Ed Orgeron came to this past year. And they've got to get, you know, move into the 21st century offensively. I just don't know in this era if you can run the style of offense that Smart's trying to run at Georgia and have success. Yeah, and I think you're right about this. This isn't one that really sneaked up on every on anybody. Most everybody saw LSU winning this game. Honestly, I was surprised. I pegged the margin of victory. I had it at 44-17 last week, and it ended up 37-10. So obviously, we saw some of this coming, but you're right. Georgia... It, cannot continue to do what they're doing and expect different results. They're they're throwing good money after bad, basically, and something's got to change in Athens, and you're absolutely right. They've got the defense. They have a championship-caliber defense, and that has not changed, but that was the same knock as you said that LSU had and they really need to start innovating especially because they have the skill players to do it they just don't have the scheme in place to use them right you know it's it's funny Zach too one last point everyone talks about you know the big story was Jalen Hurts leaving Alabama leading Oklahoma to the playoff while while Alabama sitting at home but how much longer is everyone going to ignore the fact that I think Kirby Smart picked the wrong quarterback. I, I think he's going to regret letting Justin Fields get away as much as we've seen Fields dominate college football this year at Ohio State to keep Fromm in place. Like, I, no, no offense to Jake Fromm, but I think it's pretty obvious at this point that Fields is a superior player. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And the fact that he's going to the Heisman ceremony, which we'll talk about a bit in the third segment, really attests to that. It's been an incredible season all around at Ohio State, but Fields has really been a revelation for that team. And people in Athens have to really be wondering about the decision-making process there. Well, 
to go into my worst game, I I thought it was Utah at or uh, playing Oregon in the Pac-12 championship. The Utes were one win away from either going to the Rose Bowl for the first time in their history or realistically the way things shook out having a shot at the college football playoff. This was a Kyle Whittingham team that came in allowing 56 rushing yards a game and they gave up 239 yards on the ground to the Ducks in what ended up being just a really bad loss for them. Like this was this was the sort of blowout 37-15 that I don't think anybody saw coming from Utah. Everybody talked about it being a really balanced team. You know, Tyler Huntley looked good all season long, but then he threw those two costly interceptions in the game. And, you know, Huntley and and Herbert had basically identical passing yard. Uh, They both threw for 193 yards. Uh, Huntley actually had two touchdowns versus only one for Herbert, but... In the end, it came down to those two picks, and one of the people that really stood out for me was Brady Breeze, the safety at Oregon, who right at the beginning of the game was nearly ejected for targeting and, you know, came down low on Huntley. Both of them were going low. Crown did hit, but they judged that it was not targeting, that they were both falling to the ground. And it was really lucky for Oregon that Breeze was still in the game because he had the the pick in the end zone that prevented Utah from getting a touchdown there. And then he was hitting hard all over the field all night long, ended up leading the team with nine total tackles. And just a stellar all-around performance by, by Breeze, um, also have to give out a sh- uh, shout out to Kayvon Thibodeau, who had the block punt. Uh, if he would have had better hands, would have been able to take it to the house. Uh, but can't fault him for that entirely because he did get to the ball really cleanly on that block. Had a had a couple of great sacks, was keeping Huntley under pressure all night long, bottling up Zach Moss. So... Oregon hats off to them. I'm obviously a very happy duck this week, uh, smelling some roses. But at the same time, Utah fell all the way to the Alamo Bowl. They were the only conference champion to lose this week in the Power Five and not still make it to a New Year's Six Bowl. So that was definitely the costliest loss I saw. Yeah, absolutely. You're talking about a team with a win especially with how Oklahoma kind of struggled to get past Baylor that would have absolutely made the college football playoff, in my opinion. And they fall all the way to the Alamo Bowl, which is a huge loss. Also points to the absurdity, I think, of the bowl tie-ins that a team like Virginia gets into the New Year Six over a team like Utah that's more deserving. But that's a different uh, a different topic for a different day. Yeah, I'll, I'll just let that one hang right there. We'll save that for the offseason when we complain post-bowls. Let's switch it up again, though. What was your biggest surprise of the weekend, John? You know, one of the ones that seemed pretty obvious to me um, coming into to last week was the MAC championship game. Like, as much as as foolish as I guess that was, considering the the parity we've seen in the MAC for years, but I really expected Jim McElwain in Central Michigan to to roll over Miami of Ohio in the MAC title game and. 
you know, credit to, to Brett Gabbert and um, Miami for coming into there and, and you know, pulling out the 26-21 to 21 win. They jumped uh, ahead early. Central Michigan took the lead at the half, but a, a really impressive fourth quarter, especially from Miami, making play after play to be able to come out and win that game. Um, I think a lot of people were expecting the Chippewas to, to come out ahead. And, you know, the Red Hawks were the team that, that ultimately won the game. Gabbert was, you know, not remarkably efficient, 14 of 27 for 196 yards and a touchdown, but he made some some big throws when he had to make them. Uh, he and, him and uh, junior receiver Jack Sorensen were really in sync. Sorensen had eight catches for 123 yards and a score. Uh, but just really impressed that Miami, a team that a lot of people didn't really expect. I don't think anyone really picked them in the preseason to come out top of the MAC. And the same could be said for Central Michigan. I think this was a very surprising conference championship game based on preseason polls. So I was really impressed that Miami was able to come out with that win, but very surprised. I really thought Central Michigan would be the team to win. Yeah, especially because now every team in the MAC has at least five losses. Uh, <laughs> I think that was that really speaks to the as you I, I like the way you put it parody in the league. Um, I think that's a really nice way to describe it because honestly, that parody ended up being a lot of mediocrity this year. For me, I also was really surprised by the Power Five. Um, it was specifically Louisiana holding App State within a touchdown. Um, you know, the Mountaineers were only six and a half point favorites in this game. And when they played earlier this year in Lafayette, it was a, a relatively level game, a very defensive game. So that also flipped this one on this script since it ended up being a 45, 38 thriller. Um, but I expected the Mountaineers to roll by multiple touchdowns the way they played at the end of the regular season. Uh, but then they came out, gave up 354 yards and four touchdowns to Raging Cajuns quarterback Levi Lewis. Uh, 513 total yards of offense Louisiana was able to rack up. But the Mountaineers came through. They survived. They won the Sun Belt for the second consecutive year. Um, earned Elijah Drinkwitz a $4 million a year contract at Mizzou for their troubles. And a spot in the New Orleans Bowl because they ended up losing that game to Georgia Southern or else they'd have a very real shot at the Cotton Bowl. Yeah, I think it would have been hard to keep an undefeated App State out with those two victories over Power 5 schools during the regular season. That You know, that was a game, too, Zach, that started out as a blowout. Appalachian State scored the first 21 points of that game. It was 35-17 at halftime. It was 42-17 most of the way through the third quarter. And Louisiana just never quit fighting. You know, that team really rallied around their guys and really fought and had a shot at the end of the game to to really get there. So really impressed with their resolve. And I think it really speaks to how good of a coach Billy Napier is down there. And, I, you know, I'm surprised that his name really hasn't come up more in the coaching carousel so far because I think he's on the brink of getting a, a much bigger job. You're absolutely right. That's another name that should be kicked around the carousel a lot more. Uh, because, yeah, lights out job even just staying in that contest. I have to admit I was really glad I was not writing the takeaways for that game because as Louisiana kept, you know, kept punching along, it looked more and more like that could have been an upset. 
So before we take our break, let's look a bit at individual performances as we always do, John. Who you want to hand your offensive game ball to this week? Um, the offensive game ball for me goes to Joe Burrow. Um, you know, this was supposed to be the defense that could really slow him down. You're talking about a guy who came into this game completing 78% of his passes, which is just insane. Uh, he didn't quite hit that mark, but he was still 28 of 38 against a really good Bulldogs defense, had 349 yards and four touchdowns, made a ridiculous playground play um, at one point in the game, throwing a bomb. Um, I forget if it was Justin Jefferson or Jamar Chase who made the catch, but either way, just an unbelievable performance. The really, you know, final, I guess, moment for him for the Heisman Trophy. I don't think there's any real, we'll talk about that more later, but I don't think there's any real debate about the Heisman Trophy this year. Just so impressed that he just doesn't seem phased. He looked, he seems to me like a totally different player this year and has all season long. And he's just been dynamic from the start to the finish. I don't think there was probably anybody in the preseason who projected Joe Burrow to lead LSU to the SC championship, to be at the front of the Heisman Trophy race, and to potentially be the number one overall pick in the draft. Yeah, that was wild all around. Totally did not see it coming. But he certainly, he put the last exclamation point on that Heisman bid for sure. I had to be a bit of a homer this week with my offensive game ball because C.J. Verdell carved up Utah on Friday night. He really was the linchpin of the Ducks win. I mentioned a little bit earlier that Justin Herbert had a fairly average night. He was 14 of 26 for 193 yards in the touchdown. But Verdell picked up all the slack. Against a Utah team that was given up 56.3 yards per game, he racked up by himself 208 yards and three touchdowns. And the thing is, is Utah still ranks number one in rushing defense in the country. But what Verdell did raised their average by 25%. So they were given up 56.3 heading into the weekend. Now it's 70.3. And when a player can do that to you, can rack up 200 on a team whose rushing defense is that good with Bradley and I and all those guys... I, I I can't resist but hand it out to a fellow duck. No, that's a great pick. Um, we've seen Verdell carry Oregon's offense at several points this year, and he certainly did that um, on Friday night. Uh, stunning to see him rack up over 200 yards against that Utah run defense. That was one of the things we talked about in the preview was that it was going to be difficult for Oregon to run the ball, and Herbert was going to have to really come up large, and Verdell took all that pressure off his shoulders. Yeah, as soon as he punched through that first rushing touchdown on the opening drive, you could tell it was going to be a long night for the Utes on the ground. So, hats off to him. Uh, handing out defensive game balls now. Who'd you like on that side of the ball, John? You know, um, you talked about, and I, I stuck in your backyard with Oregon, you talked about um, earlier you talked about Brady Breeze. I think there was three Ducks who were probably deserving of this. You had Brady Breeze. You mentioned Kayvon Thibodeau, who had two and a half sacks and blocked a punt in this game. But for my money, the guy that's been the heart and soul of Oregon's defense all year has been Troy Dye. 
the the senior linebacker, and I thought he was terrific in that game too. He had eight tackles, half a sack, a tackle for loss, and he had an interception. Uh, just a really a, a one of the game balls you could really give to the entire Ducks defense for just completely shutting down a Utah offense that had been so well balanced and so dynamic. Zach Moss had 113 yards on the ground, but as a team, Utah only managed 116 rushing yards on 35 carries. That's only 3.3 yards per clip. Tyler Huntley threw a couple of interceptions, and as good as Oregon's running game was, Utah's offense had to really be clicking. It had to be perfect, but Oregon's defense just didn't allow that. So as impressive as Verdell was, I was even more impressed by Oregon's defense as a whole. So I went with Troy Dye. Dye definitely deserves it. I mean, he picked off that ball with a club on his hand, basically. Right. So, I, 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 I know I certainly couldn't do that. He, he earned that ball. So, way to go, Troy. I went to SEC country, down to your neck of the woods, for my game ball this week. Because I really liked what Derek Stingley Jr. did for LSU. The cornerback picked off Jake Fromm twice. The first time they're inside LSU territory, uh, the Georgia was on the 40, really driving the ball. And he picked it off at the 13, completely sapped that drive. And the second time, you know, Georgia was just starting out in their own territory, and there Stingley is again, picking off the ball, running it down to the 13 the other way to the point that uh, LSU got to punch in a really short, quick touchdown and just really start to ice this game. Stingley ended up being third on the team in tackles, had five takedowns, uh, all solo, and he also had a pass breakup. He was really instrumental, I think, to LSU putting the clamps on the Bulldogs. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about a guy who's a true freshman, right? This is a true freshman cornerback, and arguably he's the best cornerback in the country already. I mean, teams are going to be lining up to draft this guy. If there was a such thing as a one-and-done in college football, he'd be on his way to the pros after this season. He'd be the first corner off the board. Yeah, no doubt. Well, on that note, everybody, we're going to take our first quick break. When we come back, we'll be talking about our reactions to the final college football playoff top 25, and then looking at some of the best and worst bowls of bowl season coming up. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the Saturday Blitz podcast, everybody. We just wrapped up talking about action and championship weekend, and we're shifting gears to look at what happened on Selection Sunday. So... We have uh, the sixth season of the college football playoff era behind us, coming up on the sixth postseason of it, and the committee, I think, got it right with the top four, obviously. We talked about that in the opening segment. There was no variance between the top four plus Georgia at number five, as uh, we would have seen in the BCS era. I think what's interesting is what you look at down below that, though. So what were some of your initial reactions when you saw the committee's rankings come out, John? I thought Georgia stay, like um, I thought Georgia being number five was a joke. Like, honestly, the fact that they literally talked about on Sunday that they still considered Georgia for one of the top four spots, and maybe that was just, you know, to play devil's advocate, to not be like, well, yeah, we knew the four – 
before anybody went to bed Saturday night. We knew the four. Let's play up the drama, I guess. But Georgia had no business, I think, even sniffing the playoff. I wouldn't have had – maybe the BCS has them that high too. I wouldn't have had them that high. I don't think there's really an argument for them to be above a team like Oregon, for instance, after – you know, a blowout loss to LSU, but not just that. This is the same Georgia team that lost to 4-8 South Carolina. Like, that loss didn't just magically go away. So I was shocked that they stayed at number five and still got legit playoff consideration. I was also surprised near the bottom, Zach, that Virginia dropped one spot after a 62-17 loss to Clemson. So, you know, obviously losing to Clemson is not a big deal or anything, but I, I am surprised that they only fell one spot. I don't know if that was just to – to me, that feels like them keeping them in the rankings just to say Clemson beat a ranked team this year. That's kind of what it felt like to me. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. When I projected it on Saturday night, I had Georgia dropping to number eight, and I think that would be a totally fair spot for them. Yep. Um. Yeah, I did have, uh, you know, Florida, Oregon, and Penn State all ahead of that Georgia team. And I don't think either of those would have been ridiculous. And on the other side of it, I, I you're really smart to bring up Virginia because I had them dropping completely out. And I think pretty much the entire country had them dropping completely out until they didn't. Because... That was just when you lose a championship game and you lose it to a team that good, it's not a shameful thing. When you lose it by 45 points, then you start to to push against the boundaries of credulity. Like that was a a, a bridge too far. Um, At the same time, another thing I want to bring up is uh, Memphis. I think it was, you know, the BCS would have had them as a top 15 team. The committee finally slotted them in at number 17. No matter where they ended up, obviously they were going to the Cotton Bowl. But I think this was just a really bad undervaluation of the American Athletic Conference champion in a year where the AAC was just as good as the ACC. Uh, when you look at, uh, like, the Massey Rankings computer aggregate, like, the aggregate of all the polls, and you look at it at the conference level, there is basically nothing to distinguish the Atlantic Coast from the American Athletic. Almost nothing. They're, like, I, I think it's, like, two-tenths of a point between those two in rankings where they're usually separated by multiple points. So... I think Memphis's spot there at number 17 was really low, especially when you look at several, I mean, you know, when you drop the highest and lowest ranking in the BCS rankings, they had to drop one of their number five rankings and then one that was in the, like, I think high teens or maybe it was low 20s. I, I dropped it from my projections, but... You know, what stayed is they had two top five rankings that stayed on the board. If you look just at their ranking in terms of the computers, they're a top 10 team. And while that might need to be tempered a bit, I think it's it's time for us to acknowledge that some of these group of five teams really can compete with the best around the country. 
So it's going to be really exciting to see what happens in that Cotton Bowl against Penn State. Yeah, I agree. Another thing, another thought I had, not just, I guess, from the ranking, Zach, was I guess how pointless conference championship weekend felt this year, um, if that makes sense. You only had a few conference title games, particularly the, the Power 5 games that really held stake that mattered. I think the Pac-12 title game, you know, was necessary because you had two 11-1 teams in Utah and Oregon. Well, 11-1 Utah, 10-2 Oregon. They hadn't played each other in the regular season. But then you're looking at, you know, the Big 12 title game. Oklahoma had already beaten Baylor in the regular season on the road. Appalachian State had already beaten Louisiana in the regular season. Memphis beat Cincinnati a week before they played again. Um, Ohio State had already beaten Wisconsin. I don't think anyone thought not even Virginia fans probably thought they had a shot against Clemson. And I think everyone knew LSU was better than Georgia. So I wonder, the thought I had, Zach, was that I wonder if this is, if we're coming to the end of the conference championship era and if the playoff expands maybe to eight teams, if the conference championship weekend becomes superfluous and just doesn't matter at that point. That's kind of the thought I had this weekend. I I, I think you're right. I think if not if, when they go to an eight-team playoff, because if history tells us anything, playoffs expand, especially at a college level when you have 100-plus teams. It happened in the the 1AA championship when it was still 1AA, to the point where now that's a, it's a big championship. That's a 24-team championship. And legitimately so for the number of teams that you have. I don't know that it's going to get to that level anytime soon at the FBS ranks. But when it goes to eight teams, I think you're absolutely right. The thing that's going to get axed is that conference championship. And in reality, like, there's a limited utility to them. There are certain times when, for instance, 2014, being able to parse out Baylor and TCU would have been valuable for the committee. I think if they had a 13th data point, whichever team won that game probably would have been in ahead of Ohio State. But in the grand scheme of things, I'd much rather have a quarterfinal on that weekend than I would conference championships that largely go to chalk and largely offer up little drama in terms of those final rankings. Uh, The one thing, obviously, and this weekend especially, this past weekend, as soon as Utah lost to Oregon on Friday night, Saturday became a lot more anticlimactic. Obviously, you had the Oklahoma-Baylor game, but it was basically whichever team won was going to be in unless Georgia put up a massive fight and won against LSU, and then both of those teams would have been in. But, you you know, as soon as Utah fell off by the wayside, uh, Saturday left only a few scenarios that could have possibly played out. Yeah, I mean, I think you had three play After the Pac-12 title game, I think you had three playoff perks that were already spoken for. Even if LSU... Clemson and Ohio State had all lost their conference title games. I think they probably all still would have been in the in the college football playoff this year. So I don't know. I, I think change is coming because I just I I wonder what the ratings were for these games. I haven't seen the reports or anything, but it would be interesting to dive into that to see if these games were you know 
rated like they normally are in conference championship games this weekend because it all just kind of felt a little indifferent to me. I think you might have just found something for me to sift into in my Sunday morning quarterback column this week, John, because that's a fascinating question. Excellent. There we go. I'd be interested to, to read your research. I love when that happens. Well, let's let's turn our gears a little bit here because I, I, I think we've said what we can about the college football playoff. I mean, largely the top 25 did not veer very far from what the the BCS would have had um, and didn't veer very far from what either the AP or the coaches had in place. So it, we got what we got. And I think the top four, at least, few people are going to argue with those four teams in there this year, especially the way that final weekend played out. So shifting gears let's look at some bowls because we've got the full slate. The full calendar is ahead of us. We've got plenty of time to gorge over the next three, four weeks. Once we get past army Navy and the Heisman ceremony, what do you see as your best three bowls outside the new year's six? Yeah, I obviously I'm partial to the the bowl game Alabama's playing in, but I think when you can have the opportunity to get Alabama and Michigan, two perennial blue blood programs like that matched up, I think that's probably the most intriguing of the non-New Year Six Bowls. Uh, It'll be interesting to see. you got Nick Saban versus Jim Harbaugh. There's no probably love lost in that matchup. They've had, you know, some war of words over the years and whatnot. Um, so that'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to see how many Alabama players potentially sit out this game. From what I've heard, you've got several like Jerry Judy, Najee Harris, and Jedrick Wills who have all but cleared out their lockers already with their intent to go pro. And obviously no shame in that. Uh, there's not a lot that can be gained for guys who are projected first-round picks to play in a bowl game that, you know, at the end of the day doesn't mean a whole lot. Um, I'm also excited for the Alamo Bowl. Uh, I know Utah fans are a little disappointed, but Utah against Texas is a pretty juicy matchup to me. Be interesting to see if Sam Ellinger can lead that Texas offense against that really vicious Utah defense. Um, so that would be an interesting one. And then the Holiday Bowl, I thought, was a really good matchup. You had USC against Iowa in that game. See, um, you know, USC gave the vote of confidence and it's keeping Clay Helton around for 2020 to see what he can build in bowl practices, getting a really good matchup against a quality Iowa team, see if that offense can rack up some points against the Hawkeyes, and then conversely see if Iowa's offense can keep pace with a really explosive USC uh, offense. Yeah, I think all three of those are going to be incredible matchups. I'm right there with you. For me, the one that stuck out immediately was the Las Vegas Bowl. Uh, This is the Chris Peterson Bowl, basically. It it reminds me a lot of when Bobby Bowden retired and Florida State got to play West Virginia. Uh, Chris Chris Peterson is going against his former team, the place where he really made his name for himself as Washington takes on Boise State. These Broncos... They finished the season 12-1. and one. They were right there with, with Memphis for a shot at the New Year's Six. Obviously, the way that uh, AAC championship game played out, if Memphis won, they were in. And that's the way it transpired. But Boise State got a really juicy matchup here. This is a you know Washington team that's been down a little bit, but 
getting to play your former coach in his final game, that's a really sentimental thing. And I think what's also interesting about this is this is also the last hurrah for Sam Boyd Stadium, which has hosted this game since 1992 and was built back in 1971 for the UNLV Rebels. Um, But, you know, this stadium sitting there just off the strip, uh, a couple of blocks, is... You know, it, it, it's a sweet little venue, not a huge venue, um, really intimate setting. It's been great for all of these games in Sin City. And, you know, it's going out with a bang in a way that I think its namesake former uh, casino mogul would have absolutely loved because this is a matchup to remember. The second one I really like is uh, Minnesota versus Auburn in the Outback Bowl. Auburn, they've been a giant killer. We both know that all too well, John, because they took down both of our favorites this year. Uh, Oregon and Alabama both felt the pain of the Tigers. The questions for me here, Tanner Morgan, Rashad Bateman, and that receiving crew are going up against a really strong Tigers D. The offensive line has to protect Morgan after after they gave up two and a half sacks a game this year. Um, and can Bo Nix get Auburn to 10 wins? You know, he's been sort of hit or miss all season long, but when you have a freshman leading your team, weird things can happen, especially in a bowl game. Final one I like, Camping World Bowl there in Orlando. Iowa State plays Notre Dame. You got a couple of great quarterbacks in Brock Purdy and Ian Book. Iowa State's lost five games by a combined 21 points. And, uh, you know, the Irish secondary is giving up only 163.7 yards per game, ranking third nationally. So Purdy's really got a got a job ahead of him, and it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out there. Yeah, so I mean, I think we both probably wouldn't be sad to see Minnesota take out Auburn in the Outback Bowl, I think, for sure. Yeah, that would be marvelous. I don't think either of us will be crying if that happens. Switching up, what did you see as your worst, the worst bowls on the slate? I mean, every bowl game is obviously better than not having a bowl game to watch, but which three that if people are out there can't necessarily catch everything, would you say you're okay to go to the party? Yeah. So the first one that really stuck out to me, and it wasn't necessarily because I, I like think the game is bad, like because it's going to be just bad football. I'm just disappointed. I know it's bowl tie-ins, and again, this will be something we probably hit during the off season. I'm just disappointed that Appalachian State doesn't get a shot to play a bigger team. You know, they're in the New Orleans Bowl, which is where the champion of the Sun Belt goals goes if they're not in the New Year Six, and they drew UAB from the Conference USA, who got beat down pretty bad by. Florida Atlantic in the Conference USA title game. So I was just disappointed. I would have rather seen App State play, you know, another Power 5 opponent have a shot to beat a third Power 5 team this year, which would have been awesome in my opinion. So I'm disappointed in that. Um, I also just have no desire to watch the Independence Bowl, watch Miami play Louisiana Tech. Um, I just – the Hurricanes have been so checked out all season long. I don't really need to see them and also ran bowl game – you know, go through the motions and probably get beat by a couple of touchdowns by a really good Louisiana Tech team. And then um, 
the last one for me, Zach, was the uh, the red box bowls. Oh, uh, between um, between Cal and Illinois, it honestly reminds me a lot of last year's Cheez It Bowl between TCU and Cal, which was one of the worst games I've ever watched. Where it was just turnover after turnover. You've got two teams that are, you know, more defensive minded that probably won't put up a lot of points. I just I expect that to be a pretty ugly game overall. I think that's fair, and it, it probably won't be as bad as last year's Red Box Bowl between the Ducks and Michigan State, Whew. but it could be. So, if all of you out, out there don't absolutely have to watch a bowl game that day, you're okay. You're okay. Um, and here's a couple more you can probably miss if it doesn't fit into your schedule. Don't don't change your plans for these ones. Uh, the first one, the Quick Lane Bowl in Detroit between 7-5 and five Pitt and 6-6 six and six Eastern Michigan. Obviously, people in, in Michigan, uh, MAC fans, have something to celebrate there. Getting to play a, a Power 5 opponent is always great, but Pitt is kind of a, a barrel scraper of a Power 5 opponent. They're ranking 115th in points per game this season. And at the same time, the Eagles allow more than one point more than they score. So... Really, the question is, is which one of these teams can get their offense going for a change? Second game, as much as it's always fun to see something taking place on the Smurf turf, this year's famous Idaho Potato Bowl between uh, the Bobcats and the Wolfpack is probably not, you know, appointment TV, if you will. Yes, Ohio is a top 20 team in scoring, so you might get some points in this one. And honestly, you might get a lot of Ohio points because I have a feeling this one's going to be a rout. The Bobcats are favored by a touchdown, but Nevada is giving up 11 more points per game than they score this season. So could get out of hand really quickly for the Wolfpack. Last game, the Frisco Bowl. They're on the soccer turf at Toyota Stadium in Frisco. You've got the 7-5 and five Aggies playing the 6-6 six and six Golden Flashes of Kent State. It's really been a rough year back in Logan for Gary Anderson. Um, they went bowling, but I don't know that this is necessarily the bowl game they expected to be playing in. And a big part of that is Jordan Love. He has not looked like the Jordan Love we've remembered from last year. He's ranked 80th in passer efficiency rating this season, and this could be the game he turns it around, has one final bright spot, because that Kent State secondary is mediocre as well. Uh, so it, it, it's really a, a slog. That one's going to be a slog. So if you don't have a favorite team in one of those games or you know you have something to attend during this holiday season attend it yeah i mean absolutely uh we'll be all begging for these games in a couple of months though so i'm gonna try to make a point to watch as many as i can for sure yeah like i said before we went into these any bowl game is better than no bowl game but if you just can't fit it in your schedule, don't fight it. That would be real. 
that's really what I have to say about these games, because honestly, like I said, the worst bowl game is still better than no bowl game. On that note, everybody, we're going to take our second quick break here. When we come back, we'll be talking about some Heisman races. We'll be talking Army-Navy. We'll be looking at the crap we dealt out in championship weekend. And we'll be offering you some food and drink suggestions. So stay tuned. Welcome back for the final segment of the Saturday Blitz podcast this week, everybody. We've been talking about bowl games, we've been talking about championship week, and switching back to championship week quickly, let's look at the crap we dealt out. This is the garbage of championship week. And honestly, in the Power 5 games, I did a pr- a fairly well. I was 4-1 in the Power 5 contests. I didn't see in the group of 5. I know I had a couple of hits on it, though. So... The one game that really stuck out to me is what the hell were you thinking, Zach, was Virginia covering versus Clemson. I was not crazy enough to assume Virginia would win this game. I, I, I didn't go that far. But I did say that the Cavaliers would keep this game close and make Clemson sweat in a single-digit win. We've seen it happen in ACC championship games before. This was not the one it was going to happen in. The Tigers blew out Virginia by 45, more than doubling the point spread of 21 and a half. So, if you were silly enough to bet on something I gave you, that's on you, first of all. And secondly, if you bet on Virginia... I'm sorry. I I was the fool that bet on them, so misery loves company. Yeah, I I did pretty well last week as well, so I didn't have a lot. But the one that stood out to me was I, you know, picking Utah to win the Pac-12 championship game. Obviously, a defensible selection. Um, you know, the Utes were the favored team there, but just Oregon just completely dominated. My initial instinct was to go with Oregon, but just the way things had gone in recent weeks, it felt pretty obvious that Utah was going to win that game. So the lesson there is to always go with your instincts. Unless your instincts tell you to spite your co-host, as we learned (laughs) in last week's podcast. Also fair. Well, let's look at the only game we have on the slate this week at the FBS level, John. Uh, we have the classic, uh, the traditional, the the pageantry of Army-Navy in Philadelphia. Navy comes into this game as a 10-point favorite this year. Really wasn't Army season, but what do you think is going to happen there at uh, Lincoln Financial Field? You know, this has been a series of, of runs, I would say. Uh, you know, Navy had won 14 in a row before Army won the last three. But we've kind of seen a reversal of fortunes this year. Navy had a really rough year last year, and, you know, Army kind of really rose up. But this year, it's the, the script's been flipped. Navy has had a really strong season. They finished um, in the final college football uh, regular season poll. They finished in the top 25, while Army isn't going to go to a bowl game this year. So I am, I, to me, it feels like Navy gets the, the revenge, but this game is rarely a blowout. 
we've seen so many times. This game is usually pretty close, or at least recent history indicates it's probably going to be a close game. Even in Army's last three wins, they've all been by a touchdown or less. So I don't want to go too far and say Navy's going to just run away with this game, though I do think the midshipmen or the better team are going to win. But the spread's been hovering around 10 points. I think Army probably keeps it a little closer than that. But Navy ultimately wins 24-17. 24-17. Well, I'm going to be the fool to go out on a limb and say this one will be a blowout. I love Malcolm Perry's game, and I think he's going to have a huge one against the Black Knights this week. Uh, he's just been too good. You know, as much as Army understands how to defend a triple option offense, Perry is the quarterback that can transcend them understanding what's happening with the scheme. I think he's going to get it done running. I think he's going to get it done passing as well, putting a couple over the top of that Black Knights defense. I I see this one Navy 34, Army 16. So... You know, I'll say at least we have some disagreement with the only game that we get to look at this week. That's good. That's a good sign. Yeah. So one of us is going to be happy. um, And now it's up to you out there in listener land to decide which one of us. This probably means Army wins the game outright, by the way. (laughs) Yeah, it probably actually does. We're going to see a Black Knights upset. They'll be headed back to West Point really happy. Uh Gavin Jernigan, our uh, colleague at Saturday Blitz, is going to be really pissed off about that. But let's hope let's hope one of our predictions is right at least. Let's uh, before before we close out, we have one final thing to talk about, obviously, and that's that's the Heisman ceremony that's coming up. So the Downtown Athletic Club is going to have four guys there this year. Um, three of whom were either current or former Buckeyes, three of four who either currently or formerly played for SEC schools, uh, which is kind of an interesting thing when you break it down that way. So you've got, you know, you've got a field of Joe Burrow. You've got the two Ohio State guys, Justin Fields and Chase Young. Seeing him repping the defense is really nice. And then you have... uh, former Alabama and current Oklahoma quarterback, Jalen Hurts. Now, we've seen this race pretty much boiled down to Burrow and the rest this season, but do you think we'll see any surprises at the Downtown Athletic Club this Saturday, John? No, it's Joe Burrow. He's going to win in a landslide. Um, it's not going to be a close race like we had last year with Kyler Murray and Tua Tungavailoa, I think. I think it's uh, pretty obvious that Burrow's going to win. I am excited that Chase Young got an invite to the ceremony. Um, very well-deserved. I, I think I think we're going to see a defensive player win it eventually, and I think this could have been the year if he didn't have the two-game suspension and if Joe Burrow you know, didn't have just an insane season for LSU if we didn't see that. I think there would have been a real shot for that to happen this year because we really had – you know, Chase Young probably having the most dominant defensive season since Indomitian and Sue at Nebraska in 2009. Uh, another interesting fact there, too, Zach, with the Heisman this year, three of the four guys are transfers. You know, Joe Burrow started out at Ohio State. Now he's at LSU, Fields at Georgia, now at Ohio State, and Jalen Hurts at Alabama, and now at Oklahoma. So uh, another feather in the cap for the for the folks who, who think, you know, transfers should be able to just move on 
when you know they think the situation is warranted. All those guys made decisions that were best for them, and they've all benefited from that. So, you know, if you're a guy out there who's looking at potentially transferring to better your circumstances, there's obviously been positive test case that prove that that can be a very fortunate situation for you. Oh, yeah. And I think that's really critical. You know, we talked about the coaching carousel last week. And at the same time, now that we have the transfer portal and some some looser restrictions on being able to transfer between schools, find the situation that works for you. I think that's really what that teaches us here. It's it it's what we tell coaches to do all the time, and honestly, players deserve that same treatment. And this season's really a testament to the fact that it can make a difference for an individual. Getting a change of pace, a new coaching staff, a new scheme a new whatever can really make the difference between being a good player and being a Heisman caliber player. So I'm really excited for that as well. That's another great three out of four that we have from this list. I have to ask you though, who did you see as the biggest snub that won't be in Manhattan this year? You know, uh... I think the four they invited is probably fair, but a guy, Zach, that hasn't really got the love, and it's kind of weird just based on the career they've had, and this would be a guy that's really close to your own heart, might be a guy you're wanting to talk about anyway, is Jonathan Taylor, uh, running back from Wisconsin, who's just had a dominant three-year run um, in Madison, hasn't even sniffed a Heisman Trophy in those three years. I mean, you're talking about a guy who ran for 19 Almost 2,000 yards as a freshman, 2,100 yards last year as a sophomore, 1,900 more yards this year, 21 touchdowns. He's not a guy that's been on anybody's radar. Um, I think it's hard to say that he would be deserving over a Joe Burrow for the Heisman, but I think he's a guy who could have easily warranted at least getting an invite to, to New York City for the Heisman ceremony. I would have loved to have seen him there. I know, obviously, with the way the field is this year, it would have been really tough to break through. Um, I think any running back would have a really tough time breaking through, but it would have been nice to see at least one there. And if it wasn't, you know, if it wasn't Jonathan Taylor, I think J.K. Dobbins certainly deserved a bid. Um, Obviously, with two Ohio State players already going to Manhattan, uh, Kind of hard to justify a third, but honestly, he's good enough that you could justify it. Also, Chuba Hubbard at Oklahoma State has just torn it up this season, and I think, you know, he was another running back who might have really deserved a spot there. Going to quarterbacks quickly, um, you know, we've talked about Trevor Lawrence having something of a, a sophomore slump this year, but... When you look at his stats across the board, they still definitely offer something worth considering there. So I I, I think those were the three that stuck out to me. Obviously, I would love to see Jonathan Taylor there, but I I think the way Dobbins played as well in, in the Big Ten this year, he certainly warranted it as well. Yeah, I mean... I think it speaks to just the individual performance as we saw this season. I think it really was an all-time season for individual performance. There's just so many dominant guys. I think it speaks to the talent across college football this year that those four guys that are going to New York are all obviously deserving of being there. 
but there's another dozen or so guys who could have just as easily cracked the list. Yeah, and and that's that's lucky for us as fans because we get to enjoy a wealth of talent all across the country. Well, before we go, John, I I gotta ask as always. I, I, I like to think with my stomach as somebody who cooked, so uh, what you eating and drinking? You know, um, I went simple this weekend. We only got the one game and the Heisman Trophy ceremony and everything like that. That'll be interesting to, to keep up with. But I like, um, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Chef, Zach. It would be right up your alley. I know you're not a big movie guy like I am, but a movie that would be right up your alley. Have you seen it? I have not yet, but I will definitely take that under advisement. Yeah, um, so in Chef, at the end of it, they make a grilled cheese sandwich. And there's a a Netflix show called The Chef Show, where Roy Choi and Jon Favreau, they do this grilled cheese sandwich on there where they do four types of cheeses and everything. I've never actually Mm. made it yet, but I'm really excited to try it. They make it with, with Gruyere, Parmesan, yellow cheddar, and white cheddar. Uh, butter both sides of the bread. He's got a Roy Choi's got a really great uh, quote about it, where he says, "You literally have one or two seconds between a really great grilled cheese and a burnt grilled cheese, mm-hmm. which is really true. You know, you don't really have a lot of time there. So, I'm going to give that a shot. I've got an entire loaf of bread, a ton of cheese. So if I burn a couple, oh well, I'll just keep trying until I perfect it. Is kind of what I'm going with. And I'm a I'm a huge fan of grilled cheese sandwiches, just your standard ones. So I'm pretty excited to to give this one a shot and I like the simplicity of it, but also I think all those cheeses kind of melting together would make something that would be really, really good. Um, and then to drink, I, I tried a new beer a few days ago, a new local beer in this area. Um, it's called goat Island blood orange. Mm. It's got kind of a, it's got kind of a blue moon kind of taste to it, but with a craft beer influence. So I was really, it was one of the ones I was testing for a work thing. Uh, trying to figure out uh, a, a couple new taps at, at my at my workplace, so uh, I, I tried that. Was really impressed with it. So I want to go and see if I can find that somewhere on on can, in cans or bottled or something like that. If not, I'm just going to hit uh, the bar that I know sells it and just you know kick back, relax, and have a couple of those. That sounds marvelous. I love blood orange beers, so. That sounds really tasty. And honestly, when you can take grilled cheese to the next level, why the hell wouldn't you? For me, I, you know, I was thinking really simple as well. Um, But the thing that's been sticking in my head, we found a really great Greek restaurant here recently. And I've had Spanakopita on my mind ever since. So, I, you know, I don't. I don't know what I'm doing yet. It's finals week here at Penn State, so I don't know how much time I'll have. But I might end up rolling out some Spanakopita. I might end up just going down to Trader Joe's and getting some frozen ones. Uh, that'll really be time-dependent. But there's something about that, you know, you know, phyllo dough and a little cheese and spinach. And, and I can tell Mom I've, I ate my veggies this week, so... Might as well. Uh, and then with that, I'm looking at um, Trogue Brewing here does a Troganator. It's an IPA. And 
I haven't been doing a lot of IPAs since I moved out here. Um, I was really spoiled on the West Coast, obviously, with just the mountain of different craft breweries that you could you could get the hoppiest damn thing in the world from. But I'm craving a little bit of hops this week, and so I'm going to be uh, grabbing myself a sixer of Troganator and drinking that during Army-Navy and while we wait to see Burrow coronated as the next Heisman winner. That sounds excellent. I've never actually eaten that before, so I'd be interested in a recipe or something like that. Do you want to throw one my way? Yeah, certainly. I, I, I'll, I'll have to shoot that to you, and uh, maybe we'll even have to put that in the, uh, in, in the post for the podcast this week. But for the interest of time, everybody, I won't bore you with trying to give you a recipe over a podcast because that can get a little messy really quickly. For now, we're just going to say thanks for tuning in. Uh, It's been a pleasure all season long. Enjoy Army-Navy. Enjoy the Heisman races. And we'll be getting a bit deeper into the bull picture and the uh, postseason picks next week when we talk to you again on Wednesday. For John, I'm Zach here at the Saturday Blitz podcast. Have a wonderful day.